Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. If you have a Bible, if you could please turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5 today. And I'm going to give you advance warning. I'm going to be reading a large chunk of Scripture. But in order to fully appreciate this story and what God has for us from this story, we need to take it all in. So we are in the book of Acts, chapter 5. I'll begin at verse 12 and go through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all around them were healed. Then the high priest and his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty for this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, carefully consider what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, 
For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop these men. You only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We are lost without you. All of us, Lord, suffer in this life. The question is how we will deal with our suffering and whether we will commit our lives to you in faith. So, Lord, meet us in this place through the power of your Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, um, John Gregory started out the service uh, by talking about pain. And one thing he said was, he said, there's different approaches to pain that people have and that we see in the broader culture. One slogan that we've all heard is this saying, no pain, no gain, right? We've all heard that. Another slogan that I've heard at least is um, the slogan that says, pain is just fear leaving the body. Um, I hear that works in the gym, so I'm told. I don't know for sure myself. But those attitudes to pain, whether it's trivializing pain Um, with some kind of a slogan, Uh, they may work with little things, little hurts, but they don't work with stage four cancer or depression or divorce or disappointment or estrangement. That's one approach to pain is to kind of just trivialize it. The other approach is to avoid suffering at all costs, to be allergic to suffering. And this is increasingly what we see in American society, a resistance to all form of suffering. There's a man named Andrew Del Blanco. He's professor of humanities at Columbia University, and he wrote a book a few years back. Tim Keller's mentioned this book and a few of his writings. The name of the book is The Real American Dream, and Del Banco has a very simple thesis. Here's his thesis. He said, Americans have always been looking for identity in one form or another, and at at the nation's founding, Americans found their identity in God. He has just three chapter titles, by the way, for his book, God, Nation, Self. Del Banco says, When this nation was founded, people looked to God for their identity in some form or another. He said, then there there came a a transition, a new phase in American history where people now look to the nation itself for their identity. And Del Banco goes on to argue that now we have moved to a third phase where self is the source of our identity. The self is ultimate, is what he argues is now the core story of America. There's a lot of problems with making yourself ultimate. A lot of problems when we make ourselves ultimate. I'm going to mention just two to you. First of all, the pursuit of our own goals and pleasures will never truly satisfy us. If you make self ultimate, you can pursue great things. You can pursue money and accomplishments and pleasure and all this stuff. But ultimately, it will never fully satisfy you. We were made for a meaning which transcends our own existence. We were made for for a greater purpose 
than simply to live 70 or 80 or 60 or 85 years on this earth or something like that and just try to, you know, get the most out of it. Those who fought in World War II had that higher sense of purpose, didn't they? A higher sense of, um, of, what, of what they were fighting for. They knew they were fighting for something more than just their own self-interest. And because of that, the suffering and pain that they experienced took on a whole new meaning, a whole new light. They knew they were suffering for something greater than just themselves. See, here's the thing with suffering. Suffering comes in so many different shapes and so many different sizes that the question that all of us must ask with suffering is not if, but when and how. Suffering will come. No gate, no security system, no amount of money in the bank, no degree or credential or level of healthy eating or job security can fully insulate us from suffering. But if we have a higher purpose, something that transcends our own self-interest, then suffering can be transformed. It can even be redeemed. Suffering no longer becomes something to be avoided or trivialized or railed against, but rather it is something that God can redeem for the greater good. In our passage today, we see what happens when people, in this case the apostles, encounter suffering with a higher purpose. But not just any higher purpose, with the higher purpose that we were made for a relationship with the living King of the universe, Jesus Christ, that enables the apostles not only to face their suffering courageously, but did you notice what it said at the end of the text? To even rejoice in their suffering. How can you rejoice in suffering? That's what we see in our text today. See, it's natural to dislike suffering. The Bible, by the way, never glorifies suffering. It never says pursue suffering. It never glorifies martyrdom or something like that. But what the Bible does do is it puts our suffering in a larger context. It helps us to understand why we're here and how God can redeem our suffering for his glory and even for our good. You know, when we come to the book of Revelation, you know, the last book of your Bible, some of you um, have read that book. Um, some of you haven't. But uh, whether if you have read that book, you know, all right, you're not going to read that book one time and have it all figured out. All right, there's literally hundreds, if not thousands of commentaries that have been written on the book of Revelation. You know my favorite one? The title of my favorite commentary on Revelation, it's this, The Lamb Wins. That's it. All right, I can, I can understand that. There's a lot of stuff I can't understand in that book, but I can understand that. The Lamb Wins. Suffering loses. Evil loses. Jesus wins. In the face of suffering, we're tempted to think there's no meaning to what's going on. We feel fearful and overwhelmed by the problems that we face. But through Christ, we see a different way to face suffering. Just three points today. Power, not weakness. Courage, not fear. Joy, not despair. Power, not weakness. Courage, not fear. Joy, not despair. First of all, power, not weakness. I want to go out and just say this. In the Western American church, sometimes we forget that there is power in Jesus' name. Is that true? Do you believe 
that there is power in Jesus' name? Have you heard the old hymn, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb? You can say amen now. I know we're, I know we're PCA, and, and we think the book of church order says we can't say amen. I'm here to tell you you can, okay? Um, and I'm going to channel my African-American pastor right now that's within me because I have such an affection for the African-American homiletical method, the passion, and pointing people to, to God and saying, these aren't just ideas, these are truths. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Do we believe that? I know sometimes, myself included, we think we're so smart and we're so competent that we forget that there is power in Jesus' name. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus has defeated death itself through his resurrection from the dead. And I know what we think when we come to verses 12 to 16 of a passage like this. I know what we often think. I know what I often think myself, which is this. Well, that's some really cool stuff. But that's apostle stuff. Healings and miracles and stuff. That's, that's apostle Bible stuff, but that's not stuff that relates to my life. That's wrong thinking. There is power in Jesus' name. Now, I don't have the time to go through a detailed exegesis to talk about what's normative from the book of Acts or the fact that this is the apostles and not just anybody else, but this is what I want to say. Let's not get so cute in our Bible reading that we stop believing that there is power in Jesus' name to change the most broken heart, to bring back the most wayward soul, to heal, to guide, to save. Does God still heal people today? Absolutely he does. He heals people through secondary means, through modern medicine. He heals people through miracles, like little Nariah Thumpy, whom the doctor said should not even live, should not even make it to birth. We know how well she's doing now. Is our demon still being cast out in the name of Jesus? Absolutely. Is God still saving hardened, God-ignoring, God-demeaning, God-hating people? such as I was at one point from every nation all over the world, you better believe he is. We serve a God of power. Sometimes we reduce him to a God of knowledge. The Bible does tell us true things, absolutely. But we serve a God of power who takes that truth and makes it real in our lives so that we can put our faith in him and say, you know what, Lord, there is power in your name. And I don't know if you're going to heal my loved one or I don't know if you're going to get take my loved one home to glory and give me the peace of Christ that I need when you do that. Either way, there is power in your name. Power, not weakness. We see that 12, verses 12 to 16. Courage, not fear. Wherever the truth goes out, there's always going to be opposition. Shouldn't surprise us. The darkness hates the light. Why? Because the light exposes the darkness. Sin loves to hide in the dark. We, we look at the cross... And when we look at the cross, often we, we think, um, believers, we, we think of God's love. But we, we need to remember this. The first thing that hits a person when they see the cross is our sin. The cross shows us the extent of our sin. It shows, it shows it, the, the message the cross says to us is, you and I, we're really broken people. We are, we are messed up people. We are even wicked people. And that we need Jesus. 
and every ounce of pride that we have and um, self-competence and, and uh, doesn't want to hear that. The cross is offensive to our pride. And it's offensive to the pride of the Sadducees and the rulers and the high priest. And so what do they do? They get jealous and they flex their muscles and they say, this, this isn't a big problem. These, this vagabond group of people preaching Jesus. We already took care of Jesus. Let's take care of these guys too. Um, we'll, just, we'll get them to be quiet. They throw them in jail under Roman lock and key. And um, what happens? It's a miracle. God delivers them. The apostles are set free through the work of an angel. And um, if, they were, if they were good ex-cons, what would they have done? What's a good ex-con do? You don't go and, and you don't go preach in the most public place in the city. That's so foolish. That's not what you do. If, you're, if you escape from jail, if you get out of jail somehow and you're guilty, what do you do? You go dye your hair, right? You go get a new ID. Um, if you're smart, you're going to get out of town and start going by a new name. You don't go preaching in the most public place in the city. That's what they do. They're not following ex-con 101 or something like that. They go right into the most prominent institution and they start preaching Jesus. Why? Because they have courage. Courage, not fear. They're not worried about what's going to happen to them. They know their life is in the hands of the Lord. As you can imagine, I I would love to be a fly on the wall um, for this story. Because first, someone comes in, they say, okay, bring in those guys. We're going to beat them up and we're going to silence this Jesus thing. And then somebody comes in and says, well, actually, the guys aren't there. Um, actually, we went to the jail, the, the gates were locked, the guards were there, but they're not there. And verse 24 says they were puzzled. Another way you could, you could translate that is greatly perplexed. J.B. Phillips says completely mystified. I would be too, wouldn't you, if you were in there? Just to watch the looks, they say, I don't, know, I don't know what to make of this. Now, here's the part I would really love to be the fly on the wall. Then another guy comes in and he says, and guess what? Those guys that we don't understand how they got out of jail, they're now preaching. They're now preaching the very name you told them to not preach. How do you explain that? What is they, so what do they do? They bring them in. They don't use force. They're fearful. They don't use force. And ironically, they're the fearful ones, not the apostles, even though they have the power, the earthly power. They bring them in. They, they say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you preaching this, this, this name of Jesus? And Peter says this, we must obey God rather than men. And look at the courage. Oh, and by the way, you killed Jesus, but God exalted him and we are his witnesses and so is the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? How do we explain this? Is is this a moment of hubris, of braggadocio from the uh, apostles of just kind of um, cockiness or something like that to say, hey, you know, we're not afraid of you or something like that? Absolutely not. You'd have to be crazy to, to, to behave this way. Instead, what we see here is humble gospel boldness that flows from a living relationship with Jesus. P- Peter, remember who Peter is. He's the guy who denied Jesus three times, and that when G- that's when Jesus was on trial, not him. Now he's on trial, and he's saying, we must obey God rather than men. Um, kids, if there, uh, any kids here or um, different ages, the kids have been learning 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. And 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says this, Christ's love compels us. That's what's going on here. That's, that's how they get this courage. That's how they're not fearful. 
They're compelled by Christ's love. They're strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And so they're able to be bold with the good news of Jesus. Now, a word here on what courage is and what courage isn't. All right. What courage is. Courage. Well, let me start out with what courage is not. Courage doesn't mean you know the future. All right. Courage isn't an irrational confidence in one's own abilities. I imagine that Peter and the other apostles, when they were brought in, because look what it says in uh, verse 33 of chapter 5. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. What do you think Peter and the other apostles were thinking? They were thinking what any person would think at that point, which is this is the end. We're, we're probably going to die here. We're probably going to go be with Jesus. We've been faithful to him. We've preached his name. We're not afraid to die in his name. And this is probably the, it, the end. Courage is not knowing the future. They didn't know the future. They probably thought this was the end. But they know the one who holds the future in the palm of his hand. True courage isn't a confidence that you can control the future. It's not a belief you can guarantee and massage the outcome of any situation. Rather, it's a trust that whatever the future holds, God will never leave you or nor, nor forsake you. I don't believe there's any way they would have known that a member of the high priest would give a speech that would get them off and save their lives. They didn't know that. They just knew who God was and that God would take care of them. If you think about life, there's so much to fear in life. So many things are unknown. Um, I, I love smartphones. Look, I have a smartphone too, but I think one thing that's true about smartphones is smartphones have connected us to everything. Now, every possible ailment or, or illness or tragedy that could ever happen to us or our children or our loved ones is, is, is at the tip of our fingers. We know so much now. We're, so many of us are a mile wide, myself included, an inch deep. And what's it lead to? It leads to anxiety. It leads to fear about so much. Well, what if I haven't planned this? And what about this? And what if this possibility comes in the future? What we need to remember is that our fears are opportunities for us to exercise faith in God and see the goodness, see his goodness in our lives. They're opportunities to go deeper with God. There's so much to be fearful for in life, fearful of. God says, look to me in faith, and I will give you courage to face whatever challenge you come up against. And finally, joy, not despair, our final point. Through faith in Christ, we can have joy in the midst of our suffering. What happens? Well, um, they're ready to kill them, and then this famous priest named Gamaliel, who, by the way, if you keep reading the book of Acts, you'll know this is the Apostle Paul's ex-mentor back when he was known as Saul. He's a very well-known priest in the time gets up and gives a speech. And uh, I'm going to share a very interesting thing about the, the irony of this speech in a moment. But what happens is the apostles get flogged. And uh, if you don't know what flogging is, it's a horrible form of punishment. By whipping, oftentimes there was a piece of bone or rock um, or a piece of metal put at the end of the whip. And uh, the, whip would, the whipping would occur across the back of a victim, oftentimes victims of Roman... Um, Flogging died as a result. This is horrible suffering by the apostles. And yet, verse 41 says, they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Verse 42 goes on to add, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. How could they do this? 
how could they have joy? Think about how you would have reacted. I'll tell you how I would have reacted. Um, probably one of the following reactions. First, I would have thought one of the following three. I would have thought, um, I, what, number one would have been anger, right? Anger. I can't believe people are treating me like this. I want to get revenge upon these people. Or they could have been thinking like this. Um, depression and discouragement. Unable to get out of bed in the morning. What's the point of still standing up for this Jesus guy? It never goes anywhere. We don't have any power. We don't have any influence. They could have felt defeated. I mean, come on, what's the point? Why should we keep preaching this message? But how can they rejoice? How can they not just get through it, but rejoice in their sufferings? It's because they had a higher purpose in their lives. They knew that God would not waste their sufferings. They knew that God hadn't fallen asleep at the wheel. Through the eyes of faith, they were able to see that God would accomplish his purposes. There's a story in 2 Kings where the prophet Elisha is standing and he's with his servant and his servant is worried because there's about to be a battle. And Elisha prays. He says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. You guys know this story. God opens his eyes. What does he see? He's surrounded by the army of the Lord. He started, he was able to see through the eyes of faith. It says later, um, the apostles, they were called out of the room while Gamaliel made his speech. Then um, they were brought back in and they were freed. And I'm sure as they heard about the, the cause of their freedom, I can imagine the apostles saying something like this. Isn't this just like our God? To use one of our enemies to be the means of our deliverance from death. Isn't this just like our God? I mean, there we were. We were ready to die. And yet God takes one of our enemies, someone who is not standing for the name of Jesus, to be the cause of our deliverance. What a reminder that our lives are in God's hands. He moves the kings and the rulers of this world around like chess pieces. Not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my father. There was a missionary named John G. Patton. He's a, he was a Scotsman and be, became a Presbyterian pastor in Scotland, the, the motherland of the Presbyterian church, in case you're wondering. And... Um, This was in the 1850s. He felt a call to missions. He felt a call to go to a particular island people group called the New Hebrides. There had already been uh, two missionaries that had gone to this island people to reach them for Christ. Within minutes, they were killed and they were eaten. This is a cannibalistic tribe within minutes of their um, landing on the shore. John G. Patton told a a missionary society or, or a group of pastors he wanted to go. And one of them said, John, you can't go. You will be eaten by cannibals. And his response was, whether I'm eaten by cannibals now or whether I'm eaten by worms when my body decays in 80 years, I'm going to trust God. He went there. The, the, the natives would literally um, point guns at him or, or bow and arrows, and they would say, we're going to kill you right now. And John G. Patton would look at them and say, you can't kill me unless, unless it's God's will. He would say that, and then he would you know, pull the gun out of the way. You can't kill. He would say, you can't even take my life. He would walk right up. Can you imagine that confidence, that boldness? I would be diving behind the trees and, uh, you know, covering myself in dirt and, um, and running my fastest 100-yard dash ever, not John G. Patton. He would look people in the eyes and say, you can't take my life if it's not God's will. You absolutely can't. John G. Patton lived to be in his 80s. Most of that tribe, if not all of them, converted to Christianity. It's the power of God. It's what happens when we have faith in God. Just three points of application this morning. 
Number one, if we don't fear suffering, we're free to live boldly for Christ. I'll tell you one of the, probably the great irony of this story is who, 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 are, the, who are the players in the story who have the power, who have the influence? It's the high priest. It's his associates. It's the Roman rulers. Who are the people in this story that have no power and no influence? It's the apostles. Okay. Now, who are the people that are anxious? It's the high priest and his associates. What are we going to do? We've got to lock these guys up. Oh, they escaped. What are we going to do now? Who are the people who are truly free? It's the apostles. The, the, those who have the earthly power fear, revo- fear revolt. They're concerned. The apostles have nothing, yet they're free. They're the ones with joy. Why? Because they know the king. They're liberated. Do you know that one thing that God offers us in the gospel, among other things, is freedom? Liberation. You're here this morning. You're overwhelmed by life's concerns. You're overwhelmed by life's problems. You just think, Pastor, there's so much going on. There's so much you don't know. So many issues I face. God wants to offer you freedom. Not deliverance from your circumstances, but rather a faith to face your circumstances, to know that God is in control and the peace of God that flows from that freedom. Do you have that freedom in your living, like John G. Patton? Secondly, God uses suffering to get our attention. The Apostle Paul says this, when I am weak, then I am strong. C.S. Lewis says this, and this is a great quote by Lewis. God whispers us, whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you're here this morning, you're suffering. You don't know why. God is getting your attention. He's saying to you, to me, cast your cares upon me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Bring me your pain. I'm the healer. Find the freedom and the joy and the purpose for your life that you were always meant to have. Find it in me alone. God uses suffering to get our attention. And finally this, suffering shows us that the one thing in all of life that we need the most is God himself. The one thing that we need the most in all of life is God himself. When we face different struggles, right? And, and it may be a suffer, suffering, it may be a problem, it may be an obstacle, it may be some kind of difficulty in your life. What do we all think? We think, Lord, deliver me from this, right? I don't want this anymore. Lord, take it away. What's so often behind our reaction is, that, is this sentiment. I want to be in control again. I want to be comfortable again. And so often we tell ourselves messages like this. If I just had a better job, then I would be happy then this suffering wouldn't control me. If I just uh, had a better credential, if I just had a better house or better behaved children or a better body, better friends, a better family, better boyfriend, girlfriend, better marriage, better something, fill in the blank. That's what we tell ourselves. If I just had better this, then I could deal with life and the sufferings. But what we see in this passage and what God tells us over and over again in his word is that we don't need better circumstances. What we need is Jesus himself. What we need is God himself. You see, when we're struggling, when we're hurting, we don't care about all those inconsequential things anyway. When you, know, when you have a loved one in the hospital, you're not thinking about those little things in life. You think about the most important things in life. 
And when we suffer, God gets our attention and says, do you see that I'm the most important thing? Do you see that I'm the thing that you need the most? If you have Christ, you have it all. That's why Paul could say, I could count all things a loss compared to the glory of knowing Christ and what awaits us. God is our treasure. If we have Christ, he is worthy of everything. He is a name worth suffering for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this liberating, forgiving, life-transforming good news that you sent your son to die and to rise again from the dead. We thank you that our pain is not wasted. We thank you that suffering is not pointless. We thank you that you are going to bring all things to completion in Christ and renew all things through Christ. Help us to have faith, childlike faith in Jesus this very day, that we might be a light into the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.